Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last week, the Biden administration released the National Defense and Science Technology Strategy to help the United States maintain its edge as the world's most capable military force in a world that is increasingly technologically leveled. Joining us now is one of the architects of that new strategy, Dr. Nina Collars, the advisor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, who also happens to be uh, the Pentagon's Chief Technology Officer, Dr. Heidi Hsu. Uh, Dr. Collars is a leading thinker on innovation who continues to teach at the U.S. Naval War College's Cyber and Innovation Policy Institute. And for those who are curious, her Ph.D. dissertation was on innovation. Dr. Collars, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an honor having you on the program. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here, Vago. Thank you. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Dr. Collars, thanks so much uh, again for joining us. Last week, Emily Harding of the Center for Strategic and International Studies joined us uh, to discuss uh, the new strategy. Uh, very uh, short, sweet, and to the point, 14 uh, action-packed pages, if I recall. Um, you're somebody who has been thinking for a long time and very deeply about innovation and how to successfully drive it. And I want to get to that in a moment. But what in your mind sets this strategy? We have a lot of strategies that come out, some of which have a big impact and others uh, don't. Collectively, you can argue that there is an impact. What sets this strategy apart from the many others that have come before it? So thank you for taking the time. And I'll, I'll answer. Uh, I am answering in my official capacity for the record. So. Um, I, so I have, I have a couple of thoughts about what I think makes this distinct. You are right. There are many strategies out there. And if you look over the last decade or two of science and technology strategies, you will see elements that sort of seem to uh, continue to be messaged, but sort of not ultimately uh, realized. Uh, and we can talk about why we think that's the case. What's different about the what we call the NDSTS or the National Defense Science and Technology Strategy from its outset, we decided that this was going to be a, a messaging document in particular to um, our strategic partnerships we're trying to build domestically and internationally. The international part's a big deal uh, in part because and I think the last administration gets it right, this administration gets it right, they both get it right, which is that in a competitive environment, there's no way for the United States to do these things alone, um, just full stop, right? We need our allies to do this uh, technological development alongside us. For that reason, the NDSTS only, only appears as an unclassified document. That is all it is. It is full stop an unclassified document intended to message that we are prepared and we are starting to make the shifts we need to make uh, in order to co-develop, co-research, comparative foreign, foreign test, um, and acquire sort of more broadly and interoperably across all, our, all of our allies. And then uh, domestically, I think that message is a little more familiar, um, trying to get uh, sort of the non-traditional partnerships uh, even more effective. And it's, and it's great that it's actually unclassified and a messaging document uh, and uh, the focus on allies and partners and the succinct nature with which uh, it was done 
you know, Emily um, talked about it last week, and, and I, that was my reaction to in, in reading the document, and again, would commend the audience to check it out as well. What has to happen for this to generate success from your standpoint? What, what, are, what are the keys, uh, both from a leadership standpoint, right from a leader's uh, standpoint and a follower's standpoint? So building on the notion of this as a messaging document, from a leadership standpoint, I think in contrast to a number of Department of Defense-wide strategic documents, we do build this directly underneath the Honorable Shu's CTO role. She uh, leaves herself responsible for, or we ultimately, right, the Department of Defense leaves her responsible for the future of science and technology. And that's a really big, it's <laughs> a really big responsibility. Right. And, uh, and so in that sense, you know, research and engineering and the CTO needs to set a vision for what it is we're getting after and how we get there. That's what a CTO does. And uh, so in that sense, really leaning on her leadership and uh, uh, DepSecDef Hicks's leadership and the SecDef's leadership to say, this is where we need to go. So everybody look in your satchel and find the this shaped tool and let's go ahead and let's go ahead and flex really hard on these elements, which is to say that so the services have uh, their allies and partnership um, lines of effort. Uh, we have international companies that have their uh, allies and partners lines of effort. Um, but we we are saying in this document. Honorable Shu is prepared to move out in this way to set up, and, and I think she's already well-documented and doing this personally uh, in her outreach to a number of different countries that a person could Google and um, start tallying up all of the international partnerships right. she's building. But also, uh, you know, on a broader level, AUKUS, um, whether we're talking about Pillar 1 or Pillar 2, or Diana, um, or just our bilat uh, arrangements. But she's really setting the stage to say, this is what we all need to be doing. Everybody get out there and do it. I will lead in this way. I will try and find the bottlenecks. I will try and bring down the barriers. And then others uh, can lead uh, and follow suit. And that's, and that's really what we're hoping is that, that particular line of effort uh, for the strategy. Um, I want to uh, get to sort of, uh, you know, creating an innovation ecosystem and, and risk management and all of that in, in a moment. But one of the questions, uh, what's encouraging is uh, that you guys are saying that we increasingly have to be fast adopters, right? I mean, pull technology from the commercial world and, and not sort of, uh, you know, take a long time to do that uh, to the point where that technology is no longer relevant, right? In Ukraine, we're seeing a nation in real time adopting at scale uh, technologies uh, that, that, are, that are valuable. Indeed, the department is actually studying how the Ukrainians are going about this. W within the context of any, in this strategy, you guys have sort of three focus areas and 14 technologies. 11 of those 14 uh, technologies are going to be led by industry. Um, what's going to be, you know, why, wh how do you determine what's led by industry, what's led by DOD, and why? kinds of budgeting, what kinds of investments, which markets the Department of Defense needs to get involved in ends up being one of the first things we talk about in the S&T strategy when we talk about getting after rigorous analysis for the joint mission. And what we mean by that is not to say that we haven't done analysis before, but there is a, a tremendously large universe of, of industry research and analysis. There's a, there is a, a, a brilliant uh, treasure trove of what our intelligence community is able to provide us with to think about how does what we call red 
blue, green, and orange, otherwise known as uh, what we're up to, uh, what our competitors are up to, uh, what the financial markets are up to, um, and then also what our allies are up to. And getting that analysis right and balancing it so that we can turn around and message this is where we need to fast follow. This is where we need to, uh, in the terms of the, if you've heard of the Office of Strategic Capital, this is where the department will invest uh, long-term to draw uh, uh, capital markets to ensure that we have access to markets down the line. Um, but this, this really begins with just taking a careful survey um, of what's available, all the information, bringing it together and saying, this is where the good bets need to happen. That's really, I think, a specific um, and very careful thing that can only be done inside the Department of Defense with the help of um, all of our allies and what they know, whatever we can glean from industry, where markets are going. That's really, I think, the, the nexus of getting after it, knowing where to budget, how to budget, and then selecting accordingly. That's where the analysis comes in. And that can't be done uh, you know, ideally, you know, we we execute on a on a on an S and T strategy. Uh, you know, over the long term, we have to. That's part of what what is intended by saying um, enduring uh, enduring uh, foundations, right? We try and make sure that we have these enduring advantages. So so we have that long term. But the reality is, like markets change fast, and technology whips along, and uh, and so the reality is, we have to be doing that analysis. Uh, you know daily, weekly, monthly. And so you're going to start to see, uh, you know, without revealing much, um, you're going to start to see the Department of Defense do really interesting analysis. And if we do it right, um, we should be able to signal clearly to our allies and to industry where we need to target uh, those investments. And then there'll be a whole bunch of stuff that we're not going to talk about. Um, and that's all part of strategy. Um, a par part of making this uh, succeed um, is uh, changing the risk calculus, right? As much as we talk about empowering people to go out there, take risk, fail fast, the, the, the department is not really arrayed for that. And most of the people who are given big jobs and told, Nina, get out there and it's okay if you <laughs> fail, more often than not, all of a sudden you stop hearing a lot less about Nina, right? Um, and, and then there are 535 members of Congress that love to make great political, you know, so on the one hand, they're like, we're supportive. On the other hand, the last thing you want to do is, you know, uh, would want to do is to go up to the hill and get beaten up by none other than John Sidney McCain uh, the third, right? Uh, God rest him. So what, what, how, how do you need to change your risk tolerance calculation? And what is the department doing meaningfully and organizationally on that to em empower you to move as fast as you need to move? Because as far as anybody's concerned, the department is still not moving as fast as it needs to move. So I think one of the most important things when we were writing the S&T strategy was to think about the political environment into which the document would be released. And anybody who's writing a strategy without thinking about the political environment is planning for a failed strategy. And, and, uh, and so there was a lot of, and there will always be a lot of nervousness around accepting risk, particularly for the Department of Defense. Now, the good news is, uh, the good news is, is that the uh, Department of Defense, uh, unlike sort of prior eras of technological advancement, the Department of Defense, as my friend Jason Ratchie commonly says, is the marginal dollar in these things. Uh, and so many of those risks will be, will be taken already by the private sector. 
Um, and they really are taking risks. It, uh, you know, if we want to talk about the sort of the rambunctious way in which the private sector is getting after biotech or AI, the that those risks will be offloaded. I think the risks we are talking about are more about about technological security. Where uh, do we be, we open ourselves to IP theft? Where do we open ourselves to uh, theft of uh, blueprints by um, you know sort of by hacking marauders? Wait, that is really, I think, uh, the the biggest space for risk and the the place in which we need to figure out how to manage that better. In particular, when we say we want to move out, we want to co-develop, co-research in real time with our with our allies. We're talking about real risks to revealing uh, some you know some sensitive information, and uh, so we have to while we're moving out in these sort of trilats and bilats. We uh, we need to be thinking about how do we then help our allies who may have uh, less effective security procedures, um, help them grow in that way so that we can all sort of create this, this innovation ecosystem that we, look, look, we can't control all data. The internet exists. Open science is a fact. Uh, and we have to be able to balance concerns about sharing ideas or sharing designs um, with the fact that we've got to we've got to move quickly here, um, and so we're asking for some patience on behalf of uh, Congress and behalf of our partners and allies, while we walk this very careful balancing act. How much? How much of this is? Uh, you know, the Project Jericho folks for the Royal Australian Air Force were brilliant. And and one of the things that they concluded was uh, the speed of adoption was actually key, that it was um, uh, that advantage would be measured in seconds in a future war, potentially. Right. There's no such thing as advantage for years uh, anymore. You're lucky if you get it, but you also have to be able to respond so quickly, particularly in cyberspace with mm. a degree of agility. Mm. How does that drive how we think about innovation and the nature of it, because it's as much about the thing as it is the way with which you, the speed with which you embrace, adopt, operationalize the thing, right? And you may not have a lot of time to do that. How are we doing on both ends of that dumbbell? I mean, I want to make it, I want to make the problem harder still. Go Uh, ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Because... Uh, because the, uh, in contrast to, so often when we talk about innovation, we like to talk about it from the commercial market space. And that is clearly where the sort of the leaps and bounds are happening. The problem is for the, for any defense department, not just the United States, but any defense department is that we have legacy systems built on legacy systems built on legacy systems. So the the infrastructure, the very infrastructure we need um, to have the kind of agility to do rapid adoption, that infrastructure also needs to be brought into being. That infrastructure needs to move forward. So so it often falls to these incredibly boring, uh, unsexy conversations about making sure that we have the data in the right place. How do we get these things digitized? We, we need that infrastructure such that when we want to then put on top of it fast adoption, when we put on top of it cyber effects, we have a system underneath it that can support that. Now, the private sector gets to get away with sort of these rapid changes because the private sector uh, just gets to die off 
thousands and thousands of companies are birthed and die and they fail and then their infrastructures go into the waste heap of history and a new upstart company has the new fresh stuff and we and they and they start again we can, the a, a responsible government and certainly a responsible defense department can't afford to say we're just going to fail <laughs> whole hog in our infrastructure and then start anew everybody that's not a thing we have to build legacy on top of legacy and that takes it's a really hard lift if we're trying to get to this modern operating system particularly one that's interoperable with our allies we have to do the hard work of transforming that infrastructure and that's really uh everybody wants to talk about the fast part but we can't go fast until we've cleaned up what's at the foundation and uh, are we making as much progress on that front, or is this sort of the first time that we're actually focused on clearing away that uh, overgrowth to try to get to that better future? If you listen to me in other places, people think I'm a skeptic. I'm actually very optimistic about this. The, the, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks in particular, um, in conjunction with an office uh, that is newish, the CDAO, I think is doing the yeoman's labor on this one and it's and it's frustrating and it takes time and and everybody has to update how they do their processes all of that is true um, there's a platform a data lake we're calling advana um, that's that we have we have uh, chief data officers and all of the unders office this kind of yeoman's work is happening in real time and so it's just incredibly painful and nobody wants to talk about how long it takes to get there. But I think I think I see um, genuine, I see the vehicles, I see I see the parts and bits moving along. It's going to take a while, but you're going to wake up on the other side and say this is obvious. So of course, of course texting is easy. Of course, <laughs> of course I can send a GIF on my phone. We're going to get there, but that infrastructure has to make the changeover. And honestly, uh, this administration it's a tremendous job in focusing on industrial capacity infrastructure, these things that really make the fundamental changes. It's just once we get there, things are going to move really fast, but it's it's ugly on the front end. Um, uh, and, and folks in the administration have said, we're, we're, you know, when, when folks look at it and say, oh, they're actually going backward and they're going so slow is to actually set the conditions to go That's right. faster uh, That's in, right. in, in the future without lawyering uh, for, for you guys. Um, let me take you, one of the things uh, that, uh, and I commend folks to, to uh, listen to some of your uh, presentations online uh, and talks <laughs> online about innovation. We'll, we'll get to your career as a Netspresso mule uh, here uh, in, a, in a second. Uh, but um, how, how do we need to think about innovation, right? Because there are those who maintain that actually the theater plays a valuable role, right? So many in the innovation community are sort of like frustrated with innovation theater, right? Put the mayonnaise in the tuna fish. Okay, we, we got that. That's not that big of an innovation. Uh, or Don Rumsfeld, right? Eventually a toilet will be considered transformational. It is, but we, I don't think we need to point to it all the time uh, unless, unless when direly needed, of course. The, the question is, you've said that innovation is a bit of an illusion, that, mm. um, that people are actually thinking about it the wrong way. And more often than not, it's driven by the people who actually have a need as opposed to somebody who's got a great idea that you're trying to impose on, on, on everybody. How do, what's, you know, and, and to enable, uh, right, to empower and to enable people to get working on a solution that Nina from her vaunted position or Dr. Shu may not have actually seen, right? 
but that you help facilitate? What's the way we fundamentally need to think about innovation? Uh, so you're stumbling across a whole several decades of nerdy, nerdy um, academic fights. I come at this from a, a position that that I think many. Uh, so what we call it a top down and a bottom up conversation. And so one notion is uh, transformational innovation happens when you have a genius uh, who has all the power and the money and they, they simply will it into being. Uh, and, and therefore, right, that's how innovation happens. Somebody has this genius idea. Uh, maybe they have a lot of money uh, and then innovation occurs. And that's so that that's that is that is those are certainly good components to have. But fundamentally, technological change happens from what I call a practitioner or a user's position. So that means that uh, uh, it's not just me that, that has to want the technology to work. There has to be a whole bunch of people out there who are willing to take it on and who are willing to play with it long enough until they figure out what it's for. And so there's not a real strong sense in me of like technological determinism, the 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 use of a of a car was not obvious. It it over time users figured out what cars were for, um, and so from this we call it a bottom up view. So we may have an idea of what a what a what a drone is for. We may have an idea of what a telephone is for, uh, but ultimately until you put it in the hands of your users, you you ultimately don't know what they're going to use it for, and they also have a number of opinions uh, on how they want to use them. And some of them will use them uh, to farm and some of them will use them, uh, um, you know, to attack one another. So that's, this is my view uh, that, that, that ultimately until you have practitioners, in this case, we have, um, you know, people we refer to as war fighters. Uh, I like to think of them as, as, as um, just members of the military. Um, you have to put the machines in their hands and let them figure it out. Um, otherwise, we're going to get to a conflict and we're going to have to figure it out in real time in conflict, which, in all honesty, historically, um, is how we've learned a lot of our big lessons to include strategic daylight bombing or convoy operations. Uh, we think we know what we're doing when we get there, um, but we have all these blind spots because we only know in theory. Uh, and then you're out there um, trying to drive supplies from from the port in Vietnam to inland and you find out that uh, you don't have enough protection and you're going to have to figure out another way to get supplies to and from the port. That is how we figured out how to do convoy operations in Vietnam. We figured out how to do uh, uh, the, the Army Air Force, figured out how to how to do uh, bombing. The bombers, bombers unfortunately, um, in contrast to the slogan did not always get through and we had to figure it out. That is innovation. It's also grotesque, uh, but you have to get your users in there. They have to start playing with it. They have to start uh, figuring out how, how does it fit into the operation. And so much of that gets done um, um, in, in the minds of people, but not in not actually in practice. And we have to start practicing. We have to practice a lot. Uh, uh, we we, uh, we do uh, have to practice a lot. And hence, right, having the uh, uh, the organizational infrastructure to be able to move those ideas quickly through the pipeline, right? Because people at that front edge, um, right? They advise you on what their need is. You come up with a solution to their problem. It's a little bit of the role of DIU, right? The Defense Innovation Unit, which is find problems, match them to solutions, and then have the organization be such that it can scale to, to deliver the capability to the, to the person who needs it when they need it, right? I mean, ultimately, 
this is the push oh, and the pull of it. That's right. And you're you're saying you're saying my one of the other words that I think I really want to talk about, although my colleagues, um, Honorable Laplante um, in um, acquisition sustainment, the Honorable Shoes counterpart, uh, is really getting after the scale question in a way that I think science and technology can speak to it. We can try to make an industrial base healthier, but ultimately scaling is a secondary question. But I want to, before I lay into that, I want like to talk a little bit about um, yeah, what are these? What are these shops like? Um, I call them shops. The Defense Innovation Unit and sort of welcoming aboard Doug Beck, um, brand new leadership prepared to move forward and try and figure out what is that challenge. Um, we have uh, shops like um, Afworks, Softworks, NavalX. We have all these uh, remarkably agile shops who are staring into the marketplace, trying to figure out what is the need of our folks in the combatant commands. What is the need of uh, SECNAV and um, you know the CNO? What do they need? And then how do I grab what's available in industry and make sure that we start testing, prototyping, developing, experimenting in real time? That's what those shops are for. They exist and they're doing a tremendous job. We have to, at the back end of that, scale. And the scale is, I think, increasingly a concern for uh, a number of us in the department, uh, particularly you know, with a little bit of, if you look back about a year and a half, the supply chain questions are real. Um, and so making sure that we, you know, we have, if, do we, if, if we have enough widgets and we're figuring out how to use them in real time, which is fantastic, um, how can we make sure we have more than just one widget? If we need 2000 widgets, do we have those? Do we have an industrial base, um, even not just, domestically, but maybe an industrial base across all of our allies through which we can produce these things. That is what's on my mind. A true innovation process isn't just one smart person and it isn't just one technology. It's taking it all the way through. And this is now I'm cribbing from my colleague, Mike Horowitz, um, who's at the Emerging Capabilities Policy Office. It's all the way through to an end user using it operationally. That is a full innovation process. And if you stop just at the widget and you can't scale, then you don't have innovation. You just have a widget. And so we really need to start thinking about how that happens sort of in the big picture, which is why right earlier we were talking about you've got to get the infrastructure right so that we can we can support and scale when we need to. Yeah, exactly. So you can have enough mayonnaise and enough tuna fish so that that balance uh, is right uh, when you uh, when you need it. Um, let me ask you, uh, we have two questions left in, in about the four or so minutes uh, we've, we've got left. One is on uh, talent. Um, there, we, the nation is not generating the kind of talent we need quickly enough uh, domestically. We're not bringing enough people to the United States to do this. And the number of people who are demanding that talent across industry from small to big is massive, and they're willing to pay top dollar for it. They're willing to pay a lot more than the department is, is willing to pay how does the department create the talent to be able <laughs> yeah, to tell yeah, right yeah. what it is they're looking at and make the best of it? Because once upon a time, that gap between what you were making in industry and government was not actually as big in, in some respects and, and that you were willing to go in, into government service. Yeah. So there's a it's there's there's never going to be one there's never going to be one uh, solution, unfortunately, the the workforce. Uh, problem is a real one. Investing in the long-term STEM education stuff is going to be absolutely 
key for long-term enduring advantage in this space. And all of the national programs, whether sort of federally funded or specifically within DOD funded, those programs are going to be important. They need to grow over time and we need to tap into a broader population. We need to, right, we need to sort of tap into the uh, the 51% of, of females out there, right? Making sure they're getting in their STEM degrees, but these are long-term plans. And in the short term, we're going to have to start getting serious about things like uh, STEM immigration visas. We're going to have to start getting serious about, you know, accepting risk that we're going to bring or ask for the help um, of our scientists internationally or invite our international scientists to come to the United States, we, we're going to have to do that. And, and that, is not a, that, isn't a, that is not a popular opinion. Uh, it is certainly difficult politically, particularly in a polarized uh, uh, nation this, this moment in time. Um, but it is, it is something that we have got to get after. Uh, we've got to swallow that, uh, that, that challenge and, and just we have to start getting, getting, getting the, the access to the scientists we need. Um, and the workforce, frankly, the people who can simply uh, hands on keyboard. Uh, exactly. Um, let me uh, ask you one last question. Uh, so in your Nespresso Mule, uh, which I commend people to, to listen to, it was at DEF CON uh, two or three years uh, ago. Uh, all you were trying to do was get discount coffee pods for your Nespresso, right? And you end up getting a machine and then you are uncovering what is uh, a single example of fraud that is a much bigger issue, right? Uh, you ended up with 1,200 pods and a machine <laughs> to get rid of. It's all very funny. Uh, but actually, with ChatGPT and AI, right, the giveaway was the poorly written note by the, the, the crook uh, in this little drama that was the sort of dead giveaway, right? When mm, you get mm. the Apple email message that was clearly not written by Apple uh, that, that you got. Whereas actually, ChatGPT it changes everything in the way that it composes, you know, mm -hmm. emails or, or what it can do. I was trying to find a funny way of getting into the AI discussion. Um, ChatGPT <laughs> CEO, as we record this, uh, is testifying up on the hill. How do we need to think about AI and particular quantum technologies and what they mean? Because those could be actually among the most dramatic changes, certainly on quantum, but on AI, it's a little bit mixed, right? I mean, some of these are actually just really good search engines and language tools. And, you know, it's, it, it's it, how do we need to think about both of these, which could be actually tectonically game-changing? They could about be what tectonically. it is we do and don't do. Right? They can be tectonically game-changing. Uh, you know, we're talking about the, I think everybody's there with us, the promise and peril. We're at the precipice of uh, these, uh, language processing algorithms that do a remarkable job of um, maybe discovering or thinking about or, or revealing stuff um, or generating or generatively, right? But creating language. There's two things I think about when I, the promise in peril. So the promise is this, there's an opportunity now for the Department of Defense to leverage such algorithms to help us get a little bit out of our own way when it comes to our data morass. When we think about how do we, how do we digitize, how do we bring things online? Um, we can, there's a, there's a great opportunity here to grasp um, the newly mature models um, and use them to, to get rid of some toil and actually get us moving toward that infrastructure we need, that software infrastructure we need. So I'm excited about that. The peril is this, the, particularly with AI, 
Um, so we'll see those fundamental changes. It'll get really smart. Uh, but trying to figure out how to validate what you're looking at is a little bit, these are, these are, these are very smart uh, little algorithms. Uh, the problem is now and again, they'll learn something absolutely bizarre, and it's unclear how we're going to uh, ferret out when that bizarre thing it's learning um, is going to be potentially dangerous. So it's going to happen very fast. It's very good at, at, at managing all this data and sort of busting out solutions for us. But now and again, you're going to get you're just going to get a real rotten egg and you're going to have to try and figure out what do we do about that? It, it's a little scary when you talk about weapons platforms and the peril therein. Um, it's a little scary when you talk about eighty-two billion dollars uh, going into the Department of Defense and trying to trying to produce solutions and and attaching these clever processing capabilities to it. So that's what that's what worries me. Um, I think we'll end up in a net positive, but we do need to figure out how to validate, or we'll end up with solution sets that we don't know are actually toxic is my concern. Figuring it out when it's wrong, knowing when a smart thing is wrong is really hard. Uh, Nina, an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you. I uh, hope it's the first of many more uh, conversations. Thank you so very much uh, and already looking forward to having you back uh, on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.